Did the 2022 U.S. midterm elections demonstrate that we have moved beyond risks to American democracy? What explains continued persistent divisions across the American public along party lines? Does there remain a potential for violence associated with future U.S. elections? On Season 4, Episode 4 of the ELB Podcast, we speak with Lynn Vavrick and Chris Tosinovich of UCLA's Political Science Department. Welcome to the ELB Podcast. This is Rick Hassan of UCLA School of Law and the Election Law Blog. Today's episode features a recent conversation I had with Lynn Vavrick and Chris Tosinovich as part of UCLA Law's Safeguarding Democracy Project webinar series. Lynn and Chris, along with John Sides, are authors of the fantastic new book, The Bitter End, The 2020 Presidential Campaign and the Challenge to American Democracy. That book focuses on understanding the forces behind the 2020 election. I asked them what they've learned from 2020 and what that can tell us about what we saw in 2022 and are likely to see in 2024. So I've got a lot of questions to ask. I enjoyed reading your book, uh, sober reading. And so before turning to 2022, I want to run through your findings about 2020, because I think as we think ahead to 2024 and we look back on 2022, we have to understand things in light of what happened in 2020. And so I thought I'd begin with one of the questions you pose at the beginning of your book. Um, and you say, quote, the story of the 2020 election has to address two questions, why Trump lost, but also why the election was so close. So I have a two-part question related to your questions. First, why are these the important questions to ask? And second, what are your answers to these questions? And Lynn, let me start with you, and I'll kind of rotate back and forth and ask each of you uh, after one speaks, if anyone, if the other has something to add. Thanks, Rick, and thanks for having us. Um, we're thrilled to have you at UCLA and to have this project uh, right next door to the political science department. Um, the book is the third in a series that John Sides and I have done with different folks, and this time we're so lucky to have Chris on board for this third installment. Um, and that's why the first question is, why did Trump lose? Because the books are about why the winner won, what happened in the election. And so the point of these books is to explain, not using conventional wisdom, but using social science theories and lots of data and evidence, what happened in the election, what really mattered. So that's why we answer the first question. But we couldn't really answer that first question, why did Trump lose, without dealing with the fact that this election was so, so close. People thought 2016 was close. 77,000 votes in three states. 2020 was even closer by half, about 44,000 votes in three states. Who knows what's going to happen in 2024, but it's going to be close. So we felt like that was a very big part of the story. And since it had happened twice in a row, that that knife's edge outcome, um, we thought that there was probably something systematic happening and we wanted to dig into it. Let me just follow up with that before I ask Chris to talk about what your brief answers were. You think of 2020 as even closer than 2016. Uh, but of course, that is kind of an artifact of the Electoral College. If yeah. you look at the popular vote, I think it was a 3 million vote gap in 2016 and a, a almost 7 million gap in 2020. So by that measure, it's not that close. Um, I don't know if that That's affects right. your thinking. Well, I mean... You know, obviously, obviously those things are true, but the rules of the game are the rules of the game. And all the players know the rules when they start to play that I sort of think of that, like saying, wow, 
Dorian Thompson Robinson, he, he threw 500 yards, you know, too bad. They still lost. Um, you know, he threw more yards than the USC quarterback. I'm, I'm of course exaggerating, but and he um, didn't, unfortunately. I know, I know, but I'm just saying it could have been. Um, so everybody knows the rules of the game when they start to play. If you think about 2024, we want to be thinking about given the rules of the game, what do we think is going to happen? And so, Chris, what were your conclusions on these two questions? Why did Trump lose? And why was it so close? What does that tell us more broadly about the current state of political division in the United States? One thing I think that drew us towards, you know, having to answer this question of um, why it was so close is because this was one of the most dramatic years in American politics ever. And yet, you know, hardly anything changed. The approval ratings for Trump uh, were completely, you know, not completely flat, but just way less volatile than we've seen in the past. So, you know, what that means when you have an election that close is that you don't need to change that many votes to change the outcome. And so hypothetically, there's sort of so many things that could have changed the outcome. Um, What we emphasize in the book is that uh, Donald Trump again and again sort of left on the table opportunities to reach out to the other party. And so throughout his presidency and then throughout the election campaign, and then in responding to events like COVID, like George Floyd, did not do what other leaders did, which is to say, hey, we need to all unify and have a unified reaction to these events. And those are things that helped other leaders gain support. And Trump just time and time again takes the opposite approach and says, let's make everything into a sort of an us versus them issue. And so in thinking about sort of the the likely things that could have changed the outcome, that's one of the biggest ones. And when you said it was such a big year, I, I, I think from your book, you're thinking about COVID, of course, right. uh, the, George, the George Floyd uh, racial justice movement. And then uh, I think even going so far, if we go into the next year of the, the insurrection, that not much moves the needle. So Lynn, right. what does that tell us about, is our, our politics more, I think you use the word calcified, or I would use the word sclerotic, you know, are they, are they, <laughs> are they stuck in a way that that is appreciably different than how they were, say, when Bill Clinton was president in the 1990s. And there was lots of polarization then. If you think about Clinton and Newt Gingrich, that was a polarized time. Yes. What's different? Um, Yes. What is different? This is what we spent, uh, I would say, like the better part of nine months to a year um, thinking about and trying to figure out. And we ran this very big project called Nationscape. Um, that was uh, Chris's crazy idea that we managed to get people to fund and we executed. We completed 500,000 interviews between 2019 and 2021. All personally, um, right? Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Uh, so online survey interviews. And we bring that data to bear on trying to figure out what's different, what is happening now. And we do describe the current state of American politics as calcified. And you're right, that calcification sounds a lot like polarization, but I like to think of it as polarization plus, and the plus is really important, and that's sort of the unique part. So um, there are four things that make up calcification. It's that people are more similar to one another within parties, so on ideology, on even demographics or um, characteristics, people within the parties are more the same than they were, say, right after the New Deal. 
and there's more distance between the parties. So homogeneity within, but heterogeneity between them in terms of maybe average ideology in the electorate. And those things are a long time in the making. And you might think of that as polarization, and you would be right to think that. The plus part are the other two things, which are much much more recent, the rising role of identity-based issues in our politics. So we have changed the dimension on which we are fighting from the role and size of government, regulation versus deregulation, the tax rate. We don't fight about those things anymore. We're fighting about person-based things. Immigration, separating children at the border, building a wall, a Muslim ban, abortion. So identity-inflected things. That coupled with rough partisan balance in the electorate between people who call themselves Democrats and people who call themselves Republicans, you mash all those four things up and you get this incredibly divisive politics where victory is always within reach for both sides and the stakes of elections feel very high. And then all of that, you said sclerotic, all of that means that for voters, they are, their politics is more rigid. Um, so voters are stuck with their party. The other side is too far away to try them out. So it makes people less flexible in terms of possibly split ticket voting or trying out the other side. That's calcified. Yeah. So Chris, I remember when I was a um, first year political science graduate student taking a class with John Zoller on um, statistical methods. I think the first thing that we tried to regress was the state of the economy and the incumbent president's vote share or something like that. And, you know, think again, back to the 1990s, Bill Clinton's it's the economy, stupid. Um, uh, Lynn was just saying that it's now much more identity politics. So does the economy drop out? Is that not something? Because, you know, we hear that, well, you know, Joe Biden's not going to do well because gas prices are high. So I'm just trying to understand is it just the, the few people in the middle who are not calcified, who are sensitive to gas prices? Or how do these two ideas, you know, this old idea in political science that economics drives, you know, how the incumbent party does versus this new identity politics, how do those things fit together? Yeah, so I think it's important to distinguish between like the economy, like gas prices and those sorts of things, and economic issues, right? And so part of what Lynn was saying is that economic issues have fallen out relative to identity issues. And I think that's true. Does the economy still matter? Well, I think it's true that people are calcified. The economy has to be worse for people to um, consider voting for the other party. It's also true that the state of the economy in this election and the presidential election were much more ambiguous than they have been at other times because you have some indicators that look very good and other indicators that look very bad at the same time. But, but I don't think we want to say the economy doesn't matter anymore. Part of what's going on is that because elections are continually closely contested, the economy matters precisely because elections hinge on that, like you said, you know, narrow sliver um, that's still there in the middle. We've always been talking about at the margin, right? When, you know, on this this regression that you ran in John Zoller's class, there's a relationship between the state of the nation's economy and outcome, two-party vote outcomes because it's moving people at the margins. We've always known party ID cements people. That's, you know, that's nothing new. And I think what we're sort of saying is that the margins may be smaller now than they were before because 
people are more wedded to their party because the other side is farther away than ever on these person-based issues and victory is always within reach. So just coming back to that, and I'm not sure which one of you wants to pick this up, but what do we know about those that slim margin in the middle? Are they less ideological? Are they less politically engaged? Are the people who are, say, the, the least invested in our politics the ones who have the most power? I mean, that seems like that's kind of a perverse thing. Chris, you want to start with that? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I would say that most of what's changed is not the middle. Most of what's changed is people sorting out, you know, over the longer run, sorting out into two parties where it's very clear that Democrats are on the left, Republicans are on the right. And so you don't have to be very far from the middle nowadays to know which party you belong in and to be very committed to that party. And so I think that's what's changed. There's always been folks in the middle. There's a big literature, you know, saying that, yeah, they're maybe less engaged, but that's not, that's not sort of the, sort of huge, right? I, there are people who are legitimately in the middle. There's just far fewer people today who can't sort of sort themselves into, well, I'm just to the left of the middle, and that clearly means that I should be in the Democratic Party, or I'm just to the right of the middle, and that clearly means I should be in the Republican Party. I, I would also just throw in that it's so tempting to think that because they're the last people to decide, they're they're they have all the power. But of course, this is like, you know, the right. students who come to us and say, you know, I really need an A in your class or I won't get into law school. Um, and I always say, well, what about what about the 50 other classes you took in your time at UCLA where you didn't get A's? Like those are mattering just as much right now. And so it is worth keeping in mind that the partisans who are deciding to stay wedded to their parties or in rare circumstances to cross, like they are just as important to the outcome of the election as the small set of people in the middle who are deciding how to flop. Sure. I, th I think of this analogy when we talk about as votes are being reported. Uh, and so, you know, we've seen this blue shift where the, the votes that are coming earlier tend to be more Republican. The votes that come in later tend to be more Democratic. And it's not as though people are voting at a different time. They're just being counted at a different time, which does lead me into the next discussion. And really, I want to bring it to 2022 and talk about two, I think, really big phenomena in terms of the issue that I care about safeguarding democracy. Number one, the kind of the legs that election denialism had in the 2022 midterms. So there was a lot of talk about whether the 2020 election was stolen. And lots of people, hundreds of Republicans ran on a platform of election denialism. So that's story number one is that this kind of took hold and maybe is part of identity politics. And then part two, Almost all of those election deniers, at least in the places where the races were contested in swing states like in Arizona or in um, uh, Pennsylvania, they, they all lost. So, Lynn, let me start with you. What can we say? So this now goes beyond the bitter end, the book you should all buy. This goes beyond because <laughs> your book ends uh, after 2020. What lessons can we take from what you did before and try and apply to understand what happened in 2022 in terms of these issues? Yeah, we finish the book after we go through the Capitol insurrection. And so we finish it in 2021. And we finish by saying 
that one of the weird incentives that calcification produces is since victory is always within reach for both sides, there's really no incentive for the losing side to go back to the drawing board and take stock and say, you know, people don't like what we're selling. We need to change our argument, change our package, have a bigger tent. The sort of the way that the, the Republican Party had an autopsy after Romney's loss in 2012. Um, instead, instead of changing what you're selling, calcification produces this environment in which there's some incentive to say, gosh, we almost won. If we just change the rules of the game, instead of the way we're playing the game, we could win. So we routinely, to push my football analogy, we routinely complete eight yards on our possessions. If we could make first downs eight yards, we could win this game. So we're so close, but we're not, the rules aren't working for us. And so that's what you have seen happening in all of the things that you're concerned with, Rick, the changing of election laws, of voting norms and rules, of um, who gets to certify elections, how these ballots get counted, et cetera, et cetera. All of that is changing the rules of the game to try to advantage one side. So 2022 is a big moment in terms of a lot of, a lot of that playing out where people who were um, campaigning on changing the rules going to get elected Turns out the answer, I think that is, is largely no. Um, it's not completely no, but it, was, it's, it wasn't a resounding yes, they were elected. And then were the candidates who lose, who lost elections, were they going to deny that it, the election was free and fair and call, further call on their supporters to march to the Capitol or to take up arms or to rally or protest or riot? And, and we saw very little of that possibly none of that as well. And those are, I think, two important moments in terms of safeguarding democracy. Chris, at one point when you're discussing this issue in the book, I'm going to quote from the book, you write, in an era of polarization, calcification, and close competition for control of the White House and Congress, there are growing incentives for partisans to subvert elections if it helps them win, which I think kind of echoes what Lynn just said. But it seems to me that this is asymmetric that it's only Republicans that are looking to subvert election outcomes. And Democrats maybe have a different strategy. You know, they'd like to have 16-year-olds vote. So what we haven't talked about yet is like the norms of the game, right? So if we go back to Lynn's analogy of a football game, um, you know, there are certain kinds of hits that are not allowed or grabbing someone's face mask. You know, in some ways, election subversion is like someone pulling out a knife in the middle of a football game. So I'm just wondering where do norms fit into this and norm breaking? Is it asymmetric? You know, how do we think about those kinds of questions? So I'd say, you know, it absolutely is asymmetric um, in insofar as what folks on the Republican side have done is to question the outcome of a a democratic election without any evidence whatsoever. Um, and so we should, of course, always point that out. And, and there's no sort of equivalence that we're trying to draw uh, in the book. There's this incentive just because that incentive exists doesn't mean that you have to always follow it. We give examples in the book of in the past, losers in the United States have been very gracious about conceding their elections. 
Now, you know, I think there's a broader discussion one could have about what kind of electoral reforms that help your side are legitimate and have, you know, good reasoning behind them and what don't. But it's certainly the case that in a closely contested environment where everyone sees the stakes as tremendously high, um, it's very tempting to see any reform that advantages your side as being as being a positive reform. And, and one thing I want to note about 2022 is that um, I agree the outcome was, was a good one in many ways, but it's mainly good because it's much better than what we expected from the perspective of folks who denied the 2020 election being elected. I think by the New York Times count, it's still the case that um, 180 House members have questioned the legitimacy of the 2020 election without any evidence. And 17 uh, members of the United States Senate have questioned the election without any evidence. So if you were to, you know, tell somebody 10 years ago that that would be the case, they would say, well, that's that's terrible. That's a, a terrible outcome uh, of the election. But it, it is better than than what we're expecting to happen. Yeah, I guess it's, I guess it, there is a benefit to having a low bar, which people uh, can get over it. Um, but Lynn, I want to st- stay on this question with you and just ask you about the role of norms, which don't, uh, they're not really a big feature in your book, but I'm wondering mm-hmm. if you could talk a little bit about the connection between norm erosion and calcification. Like we yeah. could be really at opposite ends politically, but we could both be committed to the rules of the game or the the tension between us gets so bad that one or both of us starts to think we've got to get out of this pattern and maybe we need to cheat or do something that messes yeah. What's the connection? I don't, I don't think it's that. Um, I don't think it's like, you know, people appreciate the differences between the party. We have a figure in the book that demonstrates nine out of 10 Americans say they see important differences between the parties. Um, people so, also- So APSA got what it wanted- 60 years ago when it said we should have two parties that are different from each other. We've got it. I like, I like to say, you know, that the American political science association wrote this report calling for a responsible two party system because they didn't think there were any differences between the two parties. And I like to say, well, how do you like it so far? (laughs) You know, like, I'm sure they'd like to write a report right now that says toward an irresponsible, you know, but um, so people voters pick up on these differences. They also are emotionally reacting to the parties in more dramatic ways. Um, so they like their own party more. They that they may not like their own party more. People have always liked their own party a lot, but they dislike the other party uh, more than they have in the past. But I don't think that this um, erosion of norms is derivative of those emotional reactions or the perceptions of differences. I think that it is really because we are fighting over things that that are very personal for people. Um, these immigration issues, abortion, religion, things relating to race, ethnicity, gender, age, those are very personal to people. And they do have a moral and ethical component to them. They are very divisive. They produce a divisive politics, much more so than role and size of government and deregulation. This is a different kind of politics. And that coupled with the fact that victory is always within reach for both sides makes the stakes of elections very high. 
And I think that is what is leading people to explore the erosion of norms. It isn't emotion. It isn't hate. It isn't that we treat politics as a hobby now and this is what we're doing. Um, All those things may be true, but I don't think they're driving this trend. I think it's that people understand very, very clearly the other side wants to build a very different world than the one I want to live in. And so I will do anything to prevent that world from happening. Move to another state, right, where I know that my rights are going to be protected. Um, Storm the Capitol, right? These are the kinds of decisions people are making because the stakes of these elections are very high and we're on the knife's edge in terms of which party's going to win. So, Chris, I want I want to turn a little bit to um, both what you talk about in, in the book, to some extent, a realignment of the parties. So, you know, if you look at Donald Trump's platform and the issues he's talking about, it's so different than Romney or McCain. And, you know, I'd say just objectively, if you looked at Trump's platform in terms of what he wants to do, it's less business friendly than, um, you know, say a Mitt Romney. Where, where does business fit in here? I'm thinking, and again, I want to tie this back to the threats of election subversion. I'm thinking about how after January 6th, 2021, after the insurrection, you had a number of businesses that said, oh, we're not giving money anymore to any of these uh, House members who voted to reject the electoral college votes from Pennsylvania or Arizona. And then slowly they came back. And so I'm wondering about the role of business here and the role of business in terms of two-party system, because, you know, if I if I read Larry Diamond or Steve Levitsky, you know, I'm told that, you know, business interests are really important in order to kind of rein in the democratic norms. So, I mean, do you have a sense, is, is the Chamber of Commerce the odd person out now in Washington? Yeah, so this, I, I think, goes a little bit beyond what we talk about in, in the book, but I think that calcification is not great for the business community because the intensity of these disagreements make wading into politics more perilous. Um, There's more, you know, like Lynn was saying, the idea that you would make your consumer choices more on the basis of politics these days is much more viable. Um, You know, businesses want to reach diverse sets of consumers and so wading into identity type politics is the last thing that businesses want to be involved in. And so, you know, but, it, uh, but then again, you know, the business community is, is quite diverse. There's many different sorts of, of businesses and, and so on. Clearly, we, we see historically the Republicans as sort of being the party that's more associated with business. Now it's, it's much less clear, probably at least partially for those reasons. You mentioned this idea of a realignment. For the most part, Donald Trump ends up governing as an across-the-board conservative. But you can think of a few issues that are important to business where that's where it's a little fuzzy. Things like trade, for instance, or foreign policy, where you know on trade specifically, it's a big pivot towards being more protectionist for the for the Republican Party. But it's it's true that um, you know that kind of historical maybe attachment to business didn't prevent election denial from taking off within the Republican Party. And so I don't think that um, business relationship is something that can be counted on to restrain, you know, either party from engaging in trying to alter the rules of the game. Uh, So thinking about this, um, kind of the cleavages that 
you identify in the book, you're primarily identifying, uh, Lynn, let me come to you first with this question. You're pri primarily identifying, you know, Democratic Republican split, but you could have described it as a kind of a college educated, non-college educated split or a urban rural split, or to some extent, a, a racial split. How do all of these different identities map onto each other? And does the fact that they're not coterminous, they're not exactly the same, these different, you know, there are plenty of Republicans in uh, Los Angeles. There are Latinos increasingly voting for the Republican Party. Do those other kinds of identities, does that maybe actually help if they're not overlapping in order to kind of give people more ways of thinking about politics and decalcifying, if, if that's the right term? Um, I don't think so. I don't think it helps is, is answering the last part first. But um, yeah, all of those, this is all part of the long sorting that makes up the beginning of calcification. Um, and all of those things you described are, are right and real. And people have sorted themselves, figuring out uh, one of the interesting things in the work that we've done over the last, you know, 16 years or so. One of the interesting things that we've learned is that the presidency of Barack Obama really simplified the politics of race for people. There were people in the electorate who didn't understand that one political party was looking to, um, you know, help out. African-American voters more than the other political party in terms of uh, providing support, um, in terms of efforts at equality. And the presidency of Barack Obama really clarified that for a lot of people. And that's a part of this shifting and sorting. People, oh, people figuring out, mm, I see, um, you know, I really should be a Democrat or I should be a Republican. And it coincides with all those demographic characteristics that you just described. Now, the fact that they're not exactly perfect. You know, the reason I said no to does that soften calcification is that really, I think, and, and I'm going to invite Chris to jump in if he thinks I'm getting this wrong, but I really think that our book, like we don't ever explicitly come out and say this, but we, we are privileging this idea that people know what kind of world they want to live in and they can see the worlds that the two parties are offering them. And they're choosing. And sure, if some non-college educated voters look at those two worlds and they want to, they say, oh, unlike my fellow non-college educated voters, I want to join the Democratic Party. They're doing that. And the same thing with Latinos and Black voters. That is derived of their preferences on the kind of world they want to live in. Um, and that is why we talk about the split being Democrat, Republican, because those are the worlds on offer that are so different. And that's what people are reacting to. I do think in line with that, you know, the studies that show that people would be more upset if their children married someone from another party than, say, from another race or religion. And that, and that wasn't always like that it does show you the salience of all of this. I'm going to come to your questions uh, if you're watching live. Uh, in a few minutes, remind you, you can put those questions in the Q&A box. There are some good questions in there, and I'll, I'll turn there in a few minutes. But I want to turn um, to the issue of political violence. And Chris, I'll start with you, because Lynn said she didn't have a good answer to this question when I <laughs> talked to her about it earlier. Um, there seems something qualitatively different between engaging in a kind of nasty partisan gerrymander, 
and storming the Capitol and trying to execute the vice president. The, you know, the expression we use uh, is jump the shark. You know, something happened that is just beyond the political norms. Uh, you know, we've been, I think, very lucky in this country that you know, in the last number of decades, political violence has been quite low. And yet we saw the storming of the Capitol in, in 2020. In 2022, things were certainly not as bad, but we did see uh, armed people in tactical gear standing in front of ballot drop boxes in Arizona. That was pretty dramatic. Do you think the risks of political violence in the United States have crested? Like, did we all take a step back and say, whoa, we're, you know, we've got to kind of, everybody's got to calm down? Or is that just a preview of, of what's coming? I hope that it's crested, but um, I think that political violence is very hard to predict because thankfully it's still like real violence is still rare. Um, there's a debate in political science about how much stock we should put in public opinion surveys where we ask people about willingness to use violence and so on. But what we know for sure is that people who are actually engaging in violent acts are a tiny, incredibly small sliver of the American public. Very hard to say how that sliver will act in the future, but that does of course have big consequences. I think what we can say is that there's an unhealthy level of acceptance of the violence that has occurred. There's a lot of, as Lynn said before, there's a tremendous amount of dislike of the other party uh, relative to what that's looked like historically. You mentioned the survey question about wanting your child to marry somebody of the of the other party. We know that part of that is substantive. It's not just about party, but it's about the fact that we know what that other party stands for very well now. And so we know what kind of person our son or daughter would be marrying if they were to marry into the other party. And so it's not sort of just, I wouldn't say it's just blind partisan rage, but that is now attached to the stakes of elections. And so I think that we know that there's some concerning things going on in terms of acceptance of violations of democracy, acceptance of political violence. We can't really study actual acts of political violence without more of them. And so I hope we don't get the opportunity <laughs> to, uh, to do that. But certainly what I'll be looking at in the near future is the degree to which people accept you know, something like January 6th as a legitimate political expression, which I think is a, a very dangerous thing. So let me ask my last question to you, Lynn, before I uh, open it up to the questions uh, in the Q&A from the audience, which is your book looks at these phenomena as long building and long standing, not about the person or a handful of people. So it's not Barack Obama or Donald Trump. It's you know a story of how they fit in. I wanna ask you how much Donald Trump matters right now in this moment. One of the things we saw with almost all of the election deniers who lost in 2020 is that they conceded their elections. I mean, and I should say concession doesn't really matter legally. You know, the winners declared the winner, whether, you know, someone concedes or not, but it matters politically because it's a way of accepting legitimacy of the election. So we saw, you know, uh, Doug Mastriano conceded, uh, the uh, Republican gubernatorial candidate in um, Pennsylvania, and uh, Blake Masters, the uh, Republican U.S. Senate candidate in Arizona. We're still waiting to see if Carrie Lake's going to concede. And 
some of the secretaries of state out west have not uh, or candidates have not yet conceded to me that's a little bit hopeful but i also know donald trump wasn't on the ballot this year so you know how much does trump matter to all of this both in terms of him not running for election because this was a midterm election year and uh he he wasn't the one making these these pronouncements trump is a huge player in this whole story even the way you described it as you know barack obama and donald trump fitting into our story I'm, I want to just put a little asterisk on that and change it a little bit. Without Barack Obama and Donald Trump, I don't think this would be the story. And so they are central, Trump more so, I think, than Obama. But Barack Obama's presidency, as I said, really helps sort people into the two political parties. And in some sense, depending on you know whose biographies you believe, um, really motivates Donald Trump to get into the race in 2016. And that decision is critical to where we are in American politics right now. There were 15 other people who ran for the Republican nomination in 2016. None of the rest of them explicitly talked about race and identity and religion and gender the way that Donald Trump did. So if he had decided not to run, we would not have shifted the dimension of conflict onto these identity-based things. So he he is implicated. You know, I saw the question in the chat that we've normalized him. That is not a part of the story at all. He's exceptional. He's the catalyst. He's the match that lights up these embers. He doesn't create these attitudes. The attitudes are out there. But Mitt Romney, John McCain, the Bushes, they do not light them up explicitly. Trump comes along, he strikes that match, he throws it on the embers, and we get a flame. And then this is what we're fighting over now. And once that flame is roaring, you know, we can't we can't put it out. He's in some sense given voice. So then he's not on the ballot in 2022. Um, but a lot of candidates um, do represent him and are endorsed by him. And I think it is important, as you said, that most of them conceded, even though that's not illegal, doesn't mean anything. It means a lot. Right. Going back to the norms. It means a lot to concede, even if you're out there saying, I don't believe it. I think there are issues. Um, you know, I saw in the Q&A someone reference, hey, why aren't you talking about Hillary Clinton, talking about Russian interference, you know, but conceding. And so the norm of concession is important. Now, Trump in 2024, do I think that, you know, he's going to sing from the same songbook? as he did in 2020? Yes. There, I think there's no reason to think that he won't play the same the same tune. And so I would say 2022 seems, seems like a step in the right direction, but you know we can easily backslide. Let me stay with you, Lynn, because you mentioned the Hillary Clinton point, and I want to make it more pointed and talk about Stacey Abrams. So Stacey Abrams in the 2018 Georgia gubernatorial election did not concede her race to, to Brian mm-hmm. Kemp, but said, said he was not the legitimate she could not re- recognize him as the legitimate governor of Georgia. You know, and I think that was kind of a a step towards normalization of this kind of language that when the other side wins, it's it's not acceptable. You talk in the book about lack of confidence when in, in how elections are run, but this seems uh, when when your side loses. But this seems to go beyond that. To what extent do you think these this kind of uh, the election denialism that we see on the right could spread more to the left? Yeah, I think it's a I think it's a concern. Um, and again, not so much because 
people see, oh, the other side did it and, and their voters believed it. And so if we do it, our voters will believe. It's not so much that as it is that, as we keep saying, the sort of the incentives are there for the parties to try this because they're not, these elections are turning on the knife's edge. And if they can, if they can create doubt and then get a rule change, get some sort of extend voting, longer periods, whatever, you know, they could win. And make no, don't forget, candidates want to win elections. I mean, that's what we're talking about. So, um, yes, I do worry about that. I, do, I worry about that a lot, that it, it can, you know, it will become the thing that people do when they lose. And right now, uh, just as we're speaking, there's a fight going on about the runoff election in Georgia between Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock, where the Secretary of State said, I read the rules, uh, no Saturday voting. And the court said, uh, no, the rules say, yes, Saturday voting. And so now each county gets to decide. And some counties are allowing county Saturday voting and some are not. And even though the state says it's not going to appeal further after going to the Court of Appeals, the GOP has gone to the state Supreme Court to try to stop the Saturday voting. So I think it's a good illustration of the kinds of game of inches that you were describing uh, earlier. Uh, yeah, just fighting over these these very basic. Yeah, things. yeah. The good news there, I'll just say quickly, is that there is um, some political science evidence to suggest that the mere talking about the fact that there might not be Saturday voting actually helps people who may not have made a plan about when they were going to vote mm -hmm. to focus on when they will vote. So it could be that the effects of this are not as drastic as they seem in theory. Um, that, you know, getting people to think about, oh, now I have to think about when I'm going to go vote actually helps people to execute their plan. Uh, Chris, I want to turn to one of the questions in the chat, uh, which uh, relates to something you said earlier, uh, which is this idea about Donald Trump missed lots of opportunities to take more moderate stances on issues that were important to the electorate as a whole, like COVID, that could have helped him to win election. Did Donald Trump fundamentally misunderstand his reelection strategy, or were these ego or personality-driven decisions, or, or can they be explained rationally for some other reason? I think that's a great question. Yeah, I, I think, you know, we try to avoid sort of going into explaining the psychology of Donald Trump and, and think more about explaining the impact of those actions. Um, you know, one thing we know is that is that Trump was constrained a lot by Congress, right? So if he had sort of doubled down and said, we need to do a, a lot of infrastructure spending or something that would have been seen as a kind of an aisle crossing agenda item during his presidency, he would have had to reckon with uh, control of Congress by a party that didn't want to do that, that sort of thing. COVID was different because it's sort of Trump himself who ends up politicizing COVID and really making it known that the GOP position uh, is that we should take COVID less seriously. And early on, you know, it was not, um, we show in the book that people in both parties, majorities of both parties want to address COVID. They want to, they're willing to make sacrifices in their own lives um, to stop the spread. And then we start seeing that gap opening up after Trump sort of pivots uh, from taking COVID seriously to saying liberate Michigan and so on and so forth. That's when you get polarization. 
What Trump consistently does is to act as if he's appealing mainly to his base. Is that a psychological thing or uh, or not? I don't know. Um, but there was a case where um, it seemed as if the option was available to win over people in his base and to sort of lead the country as a, as a whole. And instead, he sort of chooses this combative approach. So he's kind of like a he's got he's got one song and he keeps playing that same song uh, over and over again. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Uh, which is n- not kind of your mod- model of the typical politician. Where it doesn't work is with adding to his coalition, right? Um, there's definitely a set of people in the electorate who like Donald Trump's song. It's just not quite enough to reliably beat Joe Biden in a presidential election. And so that's where sort of the lack of changing in the song is is a puzzling thing. Lynn, you want to add something? I was just going to say there's this one brief moment in January of 2020 uh, when Trump kicked off his campaign, which, by the way, think about how much later that is in the year than we are right now. Like, I, I can't believe we're already starting the 2024 campaign. But in January of 2020, he kicked off his campaign. He went down to Florida and he made this speech and he said, you don't like me very much, but you're going to vote for me anyway, because I've delivered you a booming economy. And I thought to myself in that moment, like, wow, um, A, like he kind of gets it. Growing economies are good for incumbents in the White House. And B, like he's really not going to replay 2016. He's going to be this like, look what I delivered, retrospective voting, you know, Janet Jackson, what have you done for me lately kind of campaigner. And I would like to see that counterfactual play out where, I mean, for a lot of reasons where COVID doesn't hit us, but COVID derails that for him. He can't continue on that, on that path. Um, but I kind of wonder how long he would have been able to to sing that song in 2020 uh, if it weren't for COVID. Yeah, a few weeks ago, I interviewed Maggie Haberman, who probably understands Trump better yeah. than anyone. And she said, I can't get into the guy's head. So, you know, it's, <laughs> it is kind of a black box, more more, more so than with, with others. I, I, I want to stay with you, Lynn, and, and ask you this uh, question that is critical of the identity politics frame. I'll just read it. It says, I, sorry, okay. I find this discourse ultimately normalizes Trumpism, which is not normal politics at all. It ignores the effects of propaganda, insurrection outside of constitutional norms, and reduces a lot of anti-democracy speech to identity, to identity politics. The conversation about race is over the top. We're in such danger, and this conversation doesn't capture it at all. What do you think about that, that, that we move beyond kind of normal politics into something else that's more dangerous? Well, I, I think there are a couple of things um, that, you know, we've already talked about the ways in which Trump is truly exceptional and was a catalyst for a lot of what we're seeing here. Um, so in no way is the argument that, you know, Trump is, is just more of the same. Um, he's he's a very important part of leading us to sort of like the, the calcified state that we're in right now. I would say the the other thing that's important to keep in mind is this comment about reducing all of this extra constitutional behavior down to identity politics is really ignoring the fact that the policy items being debated between the two parties right now that voters think are very important are policies about identity. So should children be separated from their families at the border? Should we build a wall on the border? 
Should dreamers be allowed to become citizens? Should there be a pathway for people who are here to become citizens? Should there be a religious test to enter the country? Should women have control of their bodies? Those, those are policies. Those aren't ideas. Those aren't ideals. Those are policies that the government is debating. And so the extra democratic stuff that is coming along at the same time, we're not reducing that to identity politics. Th- those are the things we're fighting over as a nation right now. And, and, and we're not, that is, we're not making that up. That is derived from the 500,000 interviews that we completed for this project using a method that Chris came up with to help us ascertain what are the most important policy outcomes to people in terms of the kind of world they want to live in. So yes, the end of that question that you didn't read is, yes, the Republicans are offering a very different world in terms of policy outcomes than the Democrats are offering. Now, the fact that there's extra Democratic and norm erosion and violence on top of that is very important and critically important to the health of democracy. But it doesn't change the fact that real decisions are being made about people's lives and voters care about those decisions. Well, on that note, let me thank you both. Uh, <laughs> the book is The Bitter End. We've come to the sweet end of, uh, of this discussion. Uh, much more to think about. Thank you both. Uh, it's been very educational for me. It's been, a, I hope, an enriching discussion for others as well. Thank you all for tuning in today. We'll be back in January with the spring webinar series for the Safeguarding Democracy Project. In the meantime, you can go to safeguardingdemocracyproject.org and see all of the earlier programs in this series. Uh, Lynn, Chris, thank you both so much. Thanks so much, Rick. Thanks, Rick. The ELB podcast is produced with the assistance of the UCLA School of Law, but I'm solely responsible for its content. The producer of the ELB podcast is Melody Rowell. The theme music for the ELB podcast is a composition jazz by the band BFN, used under Creative Commons license. I'm Rick Hassan. Please join us again next time.